begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Uh, thank you for your word that we can know you, that we can draw near to you. Thank you for Gilbert Bible Church and the joy of being connected with one another. Thank you for your saving grace that you have rescued us from our sin. Thank you that you have reconciled us to yourself, but you have also reconciled us to one another in the body. And Lord, I pray this morning as we look at your word that it would be helpful for us to remember who we are in Christ and to be given helpful tools from your word, knowing how your spirit, he loves to work in us to make us more like Christ. I pray that would be on the heart of each person here, a longing for holiness, to please our Lord, to honor you, to glorify you in every regard. And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I think I bumped. There we go. As we start this morning, a couple housekeeping things. Does everybody have a folder? If you weren't here last time, um, we have your folder. It's out on the desk if you didn't grab it. Everybody have a folder? Excellent. And then did everybody grab an outline for this morning? Good. Each week we'll have the outlines on the table out there. So when you come in, you can grab that and then put that in your folder. A couple other things. Um, originally when we presented dates for EQ, we had October 7th as a date that we would be meeting. However, I think like three quarters of the church is going to be gone for fall break. So we are not having EQ on October 7th. So it's not on the schedule in your folder now, but if you put dates in when you originally signed up, you probably put October 7th in the calendar, and we are not meeting that morning. And then also, uh, Kara sent out an email. Um, we're going to change our service just a little bit where we won't have third uh, three-year-olds up. There will be no children's ministry, and we're going to have a shorter service. We're going to take a longer time for communion, uh, communion message. That'll be the sermon, and uh, it should be a sweet, sweet day for those of us that are, uh, that are here, probably in this section right here that week. Um, uh, A couple other things. In your folder, if you were in EQ year one, you have a bunch of resources in the back of your original folder. Karis did not duplicate those for you this year in your year two folder. So what I would encourage you, if you haven't already, pull those out and put them in year two so that you have them when you come to be able to reference, or you can make copies, or if you'd like uh, Karis can make you another set if you want to. Um, and then if this is your first year in EQ, then you should have the blue trifold uh, in your folder, this thing. And we'll spend some time revisiting this. We had, uh, I think it was two sessions, one session uh, early last year on this trifold. We'll, we'll visit that again. Uh, but especially important are some of those key dates and the chronology of the Old Testament worksheet uh, that we'll revisit again in the future as well. Excuse me. Um, so yeah, I think that's I think that's all I have there. Is there anything I'm forgetting, Anne? I think I covered it. Okay. All right, we're going to jump right into our study this morning. And what we're going to be looking at is God's desire for a holy household. The body of Christ is called to be holy. We've been seeing that in the book of 1 Peter as we've been making our way through. In fact, the specific command to be holy from God as God is holy. 
And God's desire is that his church would be a holy church. This is God's design for his church. So in our outline, we're under the introduction section. I want to talk a little bit about God's design for a holy church. We'll talk about why does it matter in just a moment, but I want to look at a few verses together. We're just going to hop around and then uh, eventually we're going to land in Titus 2, but bear with me for a little bit. We're going to hop around and look at some verses that help inform our thinking to align us with God's thinking regarding the household of God, regarding the body of Christ. And so go ahead and turn to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 verses 19 through 22 are helpful for us in understanding God's intention in the gospel to save us, but then to join us to one another as a holy people. Ephesians 2 verse 19, Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And there you see even our identity as a Christian. The the term saint is a, a collective term for the believer. As a Christian, you are a saint. You are a holy one, a set apart one. So with the saints... And are of God's household. We're part of the body of Christ. We're, we're part of the church, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, that's the household, being fitted together, is growing into what? A holy temple. We're growing into that. So we're set apart as holy saints, but then we are also, as we are set apart, increased in our sanctification, we're made more holy over time, and God is accomplishing this. In whom, verse 22, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. This is a collective activity where God joins believers one to another in a local assembly of believers. They're set apart unto God, and then they're conformed into the image of Christ as we are made more holy over time. Turn to the right, just a a page or two in your Bible, to Ephesians 5. Paul gives this beautiful, wonderful explanation and instruction regarding marriage relationships, husbands and wives. And within that, he actually uses Christ in the church as an example to help instruct husbands and wives on how they should interact with one another. And in this, we actually learn Uh, Christ's view of the church, Christ's desire for the church, and how that looks. Look at verse 25. So this is Ephesians 5, verses 25 and 26. Paul says, husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? Why did Christ give himself up for his bride? So that he might sanctify her. That's make her holy. Uh, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That's God's intention through Christ for the church, that we would be built up, that we would be purified and then presented back to Christ holy and blameless. And that comes positionally through the work of Christ, and that comes practically through the work of the Spirit and us diligently pursuing holiness. That's God's intention for the church. Jump over to 1 Peter, and we're just going to 
reinforce what we've already been looking at a little bit here, but I want you to see two passages, one that I'm sure you're familiar with because we've been looking at it recently, 1 Peter chapter 1, and then another one that echoes Paul's sentiment that we just looked at. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, Peter says, as obedient children, or as we talked about, children of obedience, that's your identity, that's the kind of children God has. Children of obedience. Not perfection yet, that's coming, but children who are characterized by obedience. In fact, he doesn't have children of disobedience. If you are perpetually rebellious rebellious against God, have no desire for sanctification, that is an indicator that you are not Christ. If that is a perpetual pattern of your life, John says the first thing in 1 John, he who sins or continues on sitting as the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And yet for those who are in Christ, they are characterized by a life of pursuing obedience. That is what we are characterized by. And so verse 14, as children of obedience or obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That is God's desire for his people. The church is made holy through individuals who are part of the church taking personal responsibility to grow in holiness. The church collectively will never be holy than its parts, more holy than its parts. If we desire Gilbert Bible Church to be holy, each of us individually needs to be pursuing actively and intentionally growing in our sanctification. We all have a part in this. And so to think uh, Gilbert Bible Church is going to be all that God intends, but I don't need to give attention to my own spiritual growth is negligent and unkind, unloving to the body and disobedient to the Lord. We are each called, you yourself are called to be holy. And what does God do through this? Look at chapter 2. Chapter 2 of 1 Peter, starting in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, for you were once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Again, we see this emphasis on our identity as children of God, as God's possession. Uh, for you weren't, verse 10, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And what's the outcome of this? What, what should be the drive of the Christian in light of this reality of God's great mercy lavished upon us. I keep bumping my, I can't bump this. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, that's fleshly passions or strong desires, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent, essentially be holy, be morally pure, 
Be above reproach, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Here we see the implications of the gospel on the Christian's life is that it would lead to a life of good deeds and excellent behavior and holy living. That's God's intention. That's God's design for his church. Now, why does this matter? What is the significance? Why does God desire us to be holy? If all God did was give us instruction, he would be fully justified, he would be right, it would be good, and we should follow it, right? Child, clean your room. Why? You don't need an explanation. You need obedience. <laughs> Obey. That would, be, that would be right from God to give us instruction, and he doesn't, he doesn't um, he's not obligated to give us an explanation, but he actually gives us one. He helps us understand the importance of our personal godliness. Turn to the right just a little bit more. Now we're going to be talking about why does it matter in your outline. And it's 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 11. 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 11. Peter says this, Now for this very reason also, and there's a really compelling statement, phrase that he makes here, Applying all diligence, comprehensive diligence. This isn't on the peripheral. Make sure you give some attention to this every now and again. Applying all diligence means being comprehensively intentional. Comprehensively intentional. Apply all diligence. Take it seriously. Put it to the top of your priorities. Apply all diligence to what? In your faith supply moral excellence and in your moral excellence knowledge and in your knowledge self-control and in your self-control perseverance and in your perseverance godliness and in your godliness brotherly kindness and in your brotherly kindness love. Why? Why are these virtues so important? Why does it matter what kind of life we live practically? God has already saved us, right? We're already children we can't add to his work. Why, why such an emphasis on this? Well, Peter tells us, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, if you're growing in these things, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, and then we see it again, brethren, be all the more diligent. So he started with applying all diligence. Now, after putting it in front of us and giving us the explanation, he says apply all more. I mean, it's, it's all the more important in light of what you just heard to make certain about his calling of, and choosing of you. What do you mean make certain? Well, live in accordance with the gospel message that you've embraced. What does that produce? Assurance of salvation. If you claim to love Jesus with your mouth, but hate the things that Jesus loves, you have no desire for personal godliness, there's no submission to Christ, you should not have a confidence in your salvation. You may be saved and just incredibly immature in your faith. That happens. But you should not have assurance, oh yeah, it's clear that I love Jesus. It's clear that I'm his child. When your life is not in accordance with that, and so when Peter says, make sure of his calling of you, that's live out a life consistent with what the gospel produces 
in a believer's life, godliness. And so he goes on to say in verse 10, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. There's a stability for one who is pursuing godliness, growing in sanctification. There's a consistency in life, a fortified stance in the faith. Now, very important point of clarification. Peter here is tying your usefulness and your fruitfulness for the Lord and to the church with your personal godliness. What might be the temptation for us if we aren't as far along in our sanctification as we think we ought? Oh, I'm useless to the body. I need to go clean myself up before I can be a part of the church. There's no place for me in the church. And all of that kind of thinking that we might be tempted to think is sinful and wrong and contrary to God's intention for his people. There is a direct connection between our personal godliness and our usefulness and fruitfulness for the Lord. But any believer, every believer, is also called to be part of the church. So there's no abandon the church until you get your life cleaned up. In fact, we're going to talk about this. How does this come about? How do you grow in godliness? One of God's primary means of grace in the believer's life is one another. So to think I need to separate myself from the body because I'm useless to clean myself up to become useful is worldly, selfish, flawed thinking. God's intention is if you are not all that he intends you to be, draw closer to the church so that he might grow you. And as you grow, your usefulness will also increase for the Lord. Because why? Sin is destructive. It tears down. It hurts. It breaks relationships, both with the Lord. It hinders our fellowship with the Lord, but also with one another. And so as we grow in our sanctification, we will increase in usefulness. But don't, if you're ever tempted to entertain this thought, I'm just not. I just don't fit in here. I'm not good enough. I just, I go home and I struggle and the Lord sees it. And then I come to church and every other person has their life together and they never struggle. And what is wrong with me? I guess I got to go figure this out because I just don't fit in. Admonish yourself. That is foolish thinking. That is not true. That is not from the Lord. That is not the solution. What does God's word say? We are to be connected to one another. We are to pursue holiness and his means of grace in your life to grow you is the church. And so why does it matter? Because we are about the glory of God. We are about the glory of God and to maximize our ability to give glory to God, we need to be seeking to grow in holiness and grow in godliness. Our purity, our holiness makes us more useful for God's purposes. We're more useful witnesses to the world and we testify to the gospel of Christ with our lives. That is God's call for us as well as we are more useful in blessing one another in the church. Listen, you can step into one another's lives more courageously with more confidence when we're struggling, when one another is struggling, when you have tasted victory in your own sanctification. Do you understand that? If you have been fighting a battle for contentment and winning, and there's a sister in Christ who is struggling to be content in a hard circumstance, your ability to step in and say, here's what God's word says, and listen, he's faithful. 
you will be you will be emboldened and you will be able to with integrity step into each other's lives and care for one another in, in whatever the issue is. Well, how does this happen? We know why it matters because God calls us to be holy. He saved us for the purpose of setting us aside for his purposes. He calls us to grow in godliness so that we grow in usefulness for him. How does it happen? Well, back to Ephesians 4. We're almost done jumping around. We've got, I'll just make you turn here. I'll reference the other ones and then we'll land in Titus. So back to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 14, Paul says, As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But in contrast to that, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. And then this wonderful passage that we reference a lot and we'll continue to reference it because it's so informative and we need it. It's counter-cultural to American Christianity what this verse says, and it is absolutely crucial and vital for our spiritual growth. Verse 16, from whom the whole body, and there we see the subject, the body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. And then the verb causes the growth. God's intention is that the body causes the growth. How does this happen? How are we built up? How do we stand firm? How are we no longer children tossed back and forth? Well, when we are connected, the body being fitted together By what every joint supplies, this goes back to, listen, your usefulness increases with your godliness. And you are a vital part of the body and need to be connected for the maximum growth of the body, regardless of where you are today. According to the proper working of each individual part, we each have an individual responsibility to bear our own burdens and do our part within the body of Christ. And when that's happening... God causes through the body the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. How does this happen? Well, a few different means. One is be closely connected to the church. That's God's intention. Have intentional relationships. This is comprehensive. God's design for the church is not Saturday night attenders. I show up and I go home and I get recharged and then I go live. I have fuel to live my life. The body of Christ is to be our life. You are connected. You are to be connected with one another. We are to have growing relationships with one another. We are to have proximity to be able to care for one another. In fact, the implications of this are are incredibly significant and bear weight into eternity. Why? Because God says your love for one another is how the world will know that you are mine. There is a gospel witness through our connection with one another, and there is gospel progress in our connection with one another as we build each other up and are built up by one another. God's church, the the teaching of a church, the pastors of a church could be the best teachers. I know you guys don't have to worry about that. They could be the best teachers anywhere, most, most captivating teachers, most faithful to the word. 
the church will not be what God intends it to be if its members are not doing this. We all have a part in this, to be connected. That's, that's how it happens. That's how we grow. That's how we are sanctified. How else? Well, personal commitment to growing, shepherding our hearts individually. You can write down Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Do not be conformed to the ways of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what God's perfect will is. That's his desire for us. It's our spiritual act of worship or service, Paul says, to present ourselves to the Lord. So how does this growth happen? It it happens by being connected with one another. It also happens by intentional heart shepherding, presenting all of yourself to all of God as a living sacrifice by taking thoughts captive. Don't let yourself think like the world, but be transformed by renewing your mind. How do we renew our minds? Spend time reading your Bible. Know God's word. Align your thinking with God's thinking. Shepherd your hearts. Direct your heart to the word of God and direct your heart to agree with what God has revealed and said is true and right and good and pure. How else does this happen? Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20, we make disciples Our lives are connected to other individuals. We proclaim the gospel, but what else does Jesus say? He doesn't just say, go tell people about Jesus. Jesus doesn't tell his disciples, go tell people about me. He says, go make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. There's actual instruction and encouragement and care towards obedience to Christ. Life on life, discipleship, care, encouragement, directing towards Jesus' teaching. And then how else does this happen? Titus 2. And go ahead and turn there, and we'll spend the rest of our time in this passage. Along with the body at large, with intentional personal heart shepherding, with evangelism unto discipleship, There's also relationships in the body of Christ that come with personal responsibility for us to embrace. Now, before we jump into Titus 2, any questions? I haven't taken a breath for a half hour. Any questions on anything we've covered so far? Comments? Okay. All right, Titus 2. So this should be the second page in your outline. Are we all together? Titus 2, 1 through 8. Instructions for growing in godliness. This is God's intention for the household of Christ, for the body of Christ, for the church. And let's just read verses 1 through 8. And then we're going to kind of break these down into the different categories that Paul gives to Titus. So Paul starts with chapter 2, verse 1, saying, But as for you, as for you, Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women 
Likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Well, I love how Paul starts here. Look back at verse 1. He says, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. There's a helpful reminder for, here, for us right here from the start. Paul tells Titus, speak what is fitting for sound doctrine, and then launches into personal character and virtue. Moral character. I think there can be a tendency at times to pit against each other spiritual truth, biblical truth, doctrine, theology, and personal character or virtue. Are you a love guy? Are you a grace guy? Or are you a truth guy? I've been asked that question. I've been told that. Hey, you know, I go to this church and it's really focused on love and grace. And I know you go to Grace Bible Church. You guys are like really big on truth. I'm like, what's up with that statement? We got grace in our name, yo. (laughs) We're not trying to neglect it. In fact, God's intention in this, look at what, look at what he says. Doctrine actually is the, the sound doctrine leads to godliness of life. There's, there's not a pitting against one another, God's truth and love, or God's truth and holiness, or God's truth and grace. God's truth, rightly applied and understood, leads to those things, and you are going to hinder the capacity to which you can rise in love and grace and kindness and virtue if you neglect God's truth. You will stunt your growth in those virtues if you neglect God's truth. God's word is pure, clean, making wise the simple. It aids us in our sanctification. It is an instrumental tool from God to grow us in conduct. What does Paul say in 2 Timothy 3.16? All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the man of God may be adequately equipped, ready for every good deed, every act of godliness, every moral excellence lived out is enhanced. You are equipped for that by God's word. And so we just shouldn't pit God's word against our growing in godliness. It's a gift for him. Knowledge puffs up, absolutely, but not knowledge about God, not true knowledge. We can hold it with arrogance and shame on us if we do that. We can hold anything with pride. That's an issue of our heart, not an issue of the source in God's word. So we we desperately need God's word. Listen, God's word, if we understand it, it does not make us feel big. <laughs> what are we described as? Helpless, godless sinners? Yeah, but, but my heart. Yeah, your heart's deceitfully wicked above all else. <laughs> you, you could never save yourself 
It took the Son of God dying on your behalf to rescue you from your depraved condition, your waywardness, your enmity, your foolishness. Those are the types of words. Those are the words that God uses to describe us. A right view of ourselves from Scripture, it humbles us. It humbles us. And it should increase our view of God, which should cause us to grow in love for him and thankfulness. Humility before him. Those are the things that God's word produces in his children. So what we're going to do next is we're going to look at several categories that Paul kind of puts forth in the church. Pretty comprehensive. Older men, younger men, older women, younger women. All of these virtues that's spelled out in these verses are echoed elsewhere in scripture and commended unto all believers. So all of us would do well to take attention to all of these virtues to desire to grow in them. And yet Paul gives some specific emphasis because of specific tendencies and equipping for the household of God to proper, properly function. And so as we go through this, keep in mind uh, how these interact with your life. And listen, uh, there are older men at Gilbert Bible this should equip you to pray for them, to encourage them, to seek to be an enablement to them growing in this way. There are younger men at Gilbert Bible. This content should cause you to pray for them, to be an encouragement to them. Older women, likewise. Younger women, likewise. If you're a younger woman in the church, as you see the role of older women, you should go, this is going to inform my prayers. That's where I need to get to. I need to be able to someday teach younger women these things. If you're an older woman, are you competent in these ways? Are you ready to step into the lives of others? And are you doing that to teach others? Some of you have come from Grace Bible Church where we had a wealth with a broad span of resources and individuals in the body of Christ. Uh, the, the pool of women, when there's six to 700 people in the church, is large compared to the pool of 200, or I think we have over 100 adults at Gilbert Bible Church. You may have been thinking about yourself for the last several years as, well, there's so much maturity around me. I, I'm a younger woman. I need to really give attention to that. Uh, the Lord may have brought you into a new category at Gilbert Bible Church. Yes, I'm calling some of you old, <laughs> older women. You may fit into that category and you need to get out of your own mind and stop thinking as an infant. Oh, I just, I just need people to pour into me. Yes, keep seeking to grow and pass on the things that you can. Aspire to step into other women's lives and care for them and encourage them. So let's start. We're going to start with older men because that's where Paul starts. We're going to kind of work through each of these virtues and give an explanation for them. Feel free to ask questions if you want. Um, raise your hand or interrupt me. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to start working through these and um, we'll, get through, we'll get through them. We're going to take the time. We're going we're gonna to get through these. So first, older men are called to be temperate. Temperate. Do you see that in verse two? Older men are to be temperate. Temperate is to be moderate. 
It's to be sober-minded. Uh, and, and the word here is used for sobriety, but not necessarily in relation to alcohol. It's a steadiness of life, uh, not quickly thrown off course. When a trial comes, you aren't undone, rushing to extremes. When victories come or successes in life, you're not automatically at the highest pinnacle and then something negative happens from your perspective and you're undone and you're derailed and everything's horrible. When things go well, you're measured in your response. When things go poorly, you're measured in your response. And this comes out in your words and in actions. You're, you're self-controlled, you're restrained, you're sober-minded. You think clearly and reasonably in the face of the adversities of life to be temperate. It's to be steady. Well, next, Paul tells Titus that the older men are to be dignified. This is to be respectable, to have a serious bearing in life. And I, I, I love the explanation of dignity in this way. You're able to rightly identify the need of the moment. Sometimes when we think of dignity, we think, oh, you, you lack humor or you're stoic or joyless. A man of dignity is just kind of a, a grumpy old man in a suit. That's not at all what it means to be a man of dignity. In fact, if you lack joy in your life, you aren't a man of dignity because you're, you're not reasonable. You're not understanding the reality of your life before God. There's not a respectableness to one who forsakes the joy that the Lord gives to his children and so while there's a serious bearing of life, an understanding of the weightiness of life, there's also an embracing rightly of the gifts of the Lord and the kindness of the Lord. And so you can identify the various needs of the moment. When things are lighthearted and joyful, you engage appropriately. And when things are, are serious and reverent, you, you conduct yourself appropriately. If we were in corporate worship... And a man comes in flippant and casual and speaking crassly. That would be an undignified man. Uh, you might think about it this way. You, you identify the need of the moment. You don't show up to a funeral as if you're at a wedding. It just doesn't meet, meet the need. You guys have heard me talk about um, just my failure years ago at a wedding where I was overly silly. Overly silly. It, it wasn't... I wasn't crass, I wasn't inappropriate, but I was just excessively goofy and not helping my dear friends think about the weight of a worship unto the Lord in a marriage ceremony where you're making a lifelong covenant to commit yourself to Christ-like service to one another in this relationship. I didn't give any thought to that. I was undignified in that moment. I wasn't helping, helping understand the need of the moment. There wasn't a reverence in me. I wasn't respectable in my behavior. Any questions on that, temperate or dignified? Okay, we'll keep going. Next is sensible, and I, I'm becoming more and more convinced at the crucial nature of this virtue and the infectious nature of this virtue. If you, if you are sensible, your life will be aided so much in your personal growth and in your uh, holiness of life and and rejection of sin. In fact, this virtue, I want you to look. Paul says older men are to be sensible in verse two. Look down at verse uh, five. 
young, older women are to teach younger women to be sensible. That means an older woman needs to be sensible and younger women are to be taught to be sensible. And then look at verse six, young men be sensible. It's the only one that's repeated this way and it's repeated three times. This emphasis on being sensible. This virtue is absolutely crucial, has a contagious effect on the holiness of your life. To be sensible is to have control of your mind. It's to be prudent. It's to be thoughtful and self-controlled with your thoughts. Similar to temperance, you avoid extremes, but particularly in your thinking, at the thinking level. A sensible person understands what they deserve before God. If you're sensible, you're not caught up in every moment or hardship of, the life, of your life. Why? Because you understand what you deserve before God in your sin, and you understand what you've been given in Christ. And so when temporal issues and challenges and obstructions and temptations come, obstacles, hindrances, trials, you're not thrown off course. Why? Because you're holding things in their proper weight and you actually understand rightly the magnitude, the gravity of the gospel. And so if you have a bad day and you don't sleep well and things don't happen the way that you want or your husband doesn't respond to you the way that you desire or your kids are sick and you are up all night or the medical report wasn't what you hoped for, whatever comes, you're sensible and you think rightly. That moment issue of hardship doesn't become an eternity weight of trial. The eternity weight of glory casts a shadow on those momentary trials. And so you're sensible and you're not thrown to extremes. Why does this always happen? Another thing happened. Nobody ever does these things, these extreme thinkings where you're, you're actually not thinking rationally or accurately in light of the whole. You're not enticed when you're sensible by the next fad. Oh, this next cool thing, this next cool teaching. You're not enticed by worldly thinking. You're sensible. You think rightly about truth and God's word. You're not drawn away from God's word quickly to pursue worldly strategies and tactics, whether it's for behavior or care for your children or education or navigating issues within the government or culture. You're not enticed by different popular things that arise. You're not overwhelmed by disappointments. Trials take their proper place. You actually can consider trials joy. Why? Because you're sensible. God has divine purpose in my trial to make me more like Jesus. And he calls me. I'm commanded to consider it joy. And so I think sensibly in that moment. You also don't get starstruck. You don't put people on pedestals. You don't think poorly immediately of somebody because they don't meet your expectations of what somebody should look like or how they do things, right? There's not uh, a thinking particularly or especially in the body of Christ where you kind of peg somebody in this light and you let your mind just run to senseless thinking about what they must be and what their intentions are and what they care about. No, you're, you're measured, you're restrained. 
to be sensible. It's absolutely crucial. Just think about the implications on your life practically as you're able to control your thinking and align it with God's. And if there is any sin in your life that you have as a current vice, I just can't get past depression, anxiety, anger, whatever it might be, unrest of the heart, it will only be exponentially aided if you intentionally pursue growing and prayerfully pursue the Lord in growing in the virtue of being sensible. Help my thinking. Help my thinking. Well, next, after sensible, Paul kind of rapid fires, uses this word sound, and then he says in faith, in love, and in perseverance. And so this soundness is for the, the man of God, the older man, to be sound in the faith, sound in love, and sound in perseverance. And I love the word that he use, uses for sound here. We throw out the term healthy a lot in our culture. Oh, this, this activity is just not healthy for me, or I, you know, I, I really got to heal and get, get healthy thinking, or we use that term a lot. Sometimes it's used well, sometimes it's used with a very secular perspective, psychologized perspective. The word for sound here actually means healthy. It, it's, it's a robust, vibrant, properly functioning is, is the idea of sound. Secure, it's good, it's right. To be sound is, is to be healthy in the faith, robust, working properly. You know the teaching of scripture regarding salvation and the Christian life. You understand the gospel and the implications of the gospel on the Christian life. You have a, a healthy, vibrant, um, it's not contaminated. It's not easily knocked off path relationship with Christ. And you have a vibrant Christian practice. You both know Christ intimately and live for him faithfully. That's to be sound in the faith. You can articulate truth and practice what it means to follow Christ, to be sound or secured or, or healthy, vibrant in the faith. He also says sound in love. Sound in love. You abound, you excel in love, love for God and love for others. You're, you're not prone to hold on to offenses. You're not bitter. You're not prone to bitterness. You're not argumentative. You're not pugnacious. You're not self-focused. The only love that is to be lacking in this sound in love is love for self. You actually put that aside and you become sound in love when you're focused on loving God and loving others. Sound in love, diligent to love others, to seek others' supreme good above your own. That's what it means to love one another. And then sound and perseverance. You're able to hold up in the face of difficulty. Again, temperance, uh, being dignified, being sensible. These things actually aid a man of God in persevering in a healthy, robust way. If you lack sensibility, you're going to struggle with perseverance. But if you are sensible, you're going to persevere. You're going to hold up in the face of difficulty. You possess a fortitude and a steadfastness. Uh, you aren't always teetering on the edge of giving up. If one more thing happens, I'm throwing in the towel. 
No, you're sound, you're healthy, and you're perseverance. You're ready to keep running the race. You're not stumbling to the finish line trying to catch up. No, there's a soundness in you. And the older men in the church are to be characterized this way. There's a stability in them. When you think about this sound in faith, they, they know God's truth. They have a robust relationship with Christ. They're living it out practically in their love for God, their love for others, and they're finishing the race strong. They're not sputtering to the end line. Now, that's a, that's a lot to teach women on older men. <laughs> Each one of you should be asking yourself, how can I contribute in aiding whoever the Lord has in your life? Dads, husbands, friends at the appropriate level of friendship, right? Wives, husbands that you can pray for, your husband, pray for your leaders. Pray for Tom and Tyler and I, that we would be these kinds of men. We have to be. We're called to this. Pray for us. Encourage us. When you think about your being a wife to your husband, are you removing every obstacle in your care for him that you can to helping him be this way? Are you promoting what is good for him to grow in these things? And then we go back to what are God's means to helping us grow in this? Are you paving the way to help him grow in these things? Or is there a fixation on self that says, I need my husband. And so he feels attention anytime there's something to do with the church and she really needs me right at this moment. Your life will be so sweeter as your husband grows in these areas. And so whatever degree your husband is at in this, it, as he increases, it will only be sweeter for you. And so aid him in that, help him in that. And I told the husbands to help you guys as well. So it's not just for you, okay? On the, on the women part, which we're going to talk about next. Any questions on that before we move into older women? Yes, Marie. Great question. So in this passage, the specific instruction that Paul's giving Titus is for the men to be this way. Every single one of these virtues is echoed elsewhere in scripture for Christians. So when we see these virtues, um, we all should aspire to be these things. There's none of these. The only nuance that we're going to get into is when he's telling women about their relationship with their husbands. We wouldn't tell a husband to be the same way with their wife that a wife is called to be with her husband. There is specific instruction elsewhere for how a husband should be with his wife, and we don't neglect that in our teaching as well. So all of the virtues, particularly in the old older men category, all Christians are actually called to these. However, in this context, Paul's giving Titus instruction. As a church, what should our older men be thinking about? These virtues and growing in them, being exemplary in them. That doesn't mean we should neglect them. Um, and he actually echoes the idea of sensibility. And I, and I want you to see something. Look at verse 3. When he says, older women likewise, and then he goes into are to be reverent, that reverence is a life, I'll talk about it in a minute, but it's, it's a life of um, faithful service that fits Christian character. And I think when he says likewise, he's having in mind, like be these two 
and here's specific instruction. But the primary emphasis is on the older men. And then the primary emphasis for the women is what's going to follow. But, that's, but, but we're all called to these things. Really good question. Anything else? Okay, we're going to keep going. Reverent in behavior. I love this word. It's a, a reverent person has behavior that fits Christian character. Older women are to be this. You should be thinking, if, if you're younger, be thinking, this is what I need to, to grow into. I need to be reverent in my behavior. I need to have behavior that's consistent with Christian character. I need to have a lifestyle that is consistent with one who is called for the specific purposes of God. This word reverent was used in relation to priests, where their actions were consistent with the role that they had of advocating on the people for the people of God with God. It's understanding the seriousness of the life that God calls us to in holiness. And so women are to be reverent in behavior. And I love this because sometimes there can be a view that if, if you don't think women should be in leadership over men, you are stunting their usefulness for the purposes of God. And Paul actually uses the term, which, which we believe that women should not exercise authority over men. However, and Paul taught that, so Paul believes that. However, Paul uses a term that's likened to a priest doing work unto the Lord to describe the kind of character and behavior that a woman should have. Reverent. That, that, ind, that uh, indicates a usefulness, profound usefulness for the purposes of God. So don't ever think for one moment that because you don't have the role of a pastor or elder because you're a woman, that you're somehow less useful for the purposes of God. God doesn't think that way. He just has different roles, and it's still vitally useful for the sake of the body of Christ. He also says, don't be malicious gossips. Uh, you're not eager to know information that doesn't pertain to you so that you can pass it on and exchange the latest news about who did what. If you find your heart prone to loving the inside scoop on information that you don't have a, a part to bringing about resolution or remedy to, be content to let those things go. You don't need to go there or to make yourself feel better because, hey, did you hear what they did? And you tear people down or you try to posture yourself in a positive light by speaking poorly about others. How do you think about information that doesn't pertain to you? Do you want, do you want to know do you want to share with others? Do you like the status of kind of knowing what's going on behind the scenes? Next, he says, not enslaved to much wine. Going with the priestly idea of reverent behavior, Paul says, not enslaved to much wine. Priests were not allowed to carry out their duties if they had drank alcohol. It would disgrace the office and women are not to be dominated by thinking about wine or intoxication. They're not to be preoccupied with wine or any substance for that matter. The woman of God is not to be characterized by a lover of alcohol, a lover of wine. Why? You're going to lose your temperance, your sensibility, your, able to th your ability to think clearly, your self-control. All of those things are hindered through intoxication. There's not to be a, a desire to just sit around and speak loosely as you numb yourself 
by alcohol. Women are also called to teach what is good. Don't be a gossip. Don't be drunk or undignified in your behavior, particularly around alcohol, but positively teach what is good. Let your words and actions be exemplary actions and edifying words. Control your speech to build up and edify. And what is good is what you are to teach young women, which means you're also living these things. You're living what is good, and you're able to instruct and give guidance on what is good. I know we have benefited, Julie and I have benefited over the years so much from godly women who have walked before us speaking truth and helping her know how to navigate situations with the kids. That should be happening all the time. How to care for me when I'm not being all that God calls me to be. Those kinds of relationships are vital and helpful. And now in turn, as she's grown, she's had many opportunities to speak into others' lives and care for others, to help others, teach, teach what is good. Well, next he moves into young women, which is appropriate because here's the virtue that an older woman's to have. They're to teach what's good. And here, what is the teaching that is good? He's going to actually spell this out specifically, young women. Young women, in verse 4, so that he may teach young women, uh, so that they may teach the young women to first love their husbands. Love their husbands. This is having affection. It's being devoted to be a husband lover, it's dying to self for your husband's good. What brings the best to my husband's life, even or regardless of the cost to myself? Women are to be devoted to their husbands. And there's no clause about what your husband must be in order for you to do this. Regardless of where your husband's at, before the Lord, in his maturity, in his disposition towards you, you're called to love your husband. Be devoted to loving your husband. Also, young women are to be taught, well, which I love this. It, the, you're to be taught this. This isn't the natural inclination of every person. And so if you go, man, this list is rough. That's why we need this instruction because it's rough for everybody. <laughs> all of us need this encouragement. Well, all of the women need encouragement to love their husbands. All of us need encouragement towards sanctification and growing. Also, teach the women to love their children. You're commanded to love your children. Love being a mom. It's not easy. It's relentless. Not everything is always roses. All sorts of behavior and defiance and smells and noises come out of your kids. It is not always easy to love them. And each mom is called to love her children, to agree with God. Children are a blessing from the Lord, to love being a mom. If you find yourself wanting to run away from mom duties, you need to direct your heart to love your children. Help others in this. What would it look like to not help others? Somebody comes to you, complains about things going on with their husband, complains about things going on with their kids, and what is your response? Oh, I know. My husband, my kids, that's not going to help one another be a husband, love their husband, love their kids, to go, hey, I understand it's hard. 
But do you remember what God's call is for us? We're called to love our husbands. Are, are you thinking about loving your husband right now or are you thinking about loving yourself? Oh, whoa, Josh, that's really direct. Yeah, be direct. It helps us be holy. Why would we not want that? Why would we want to tiptoe around wrong thinking when God specifically says, love your husband, love your children? This goes for men as well in regards to their wives, to love their wives, to care for their children. Don't love careers or money more than you love your children. God has direct connection for wives, for for women, to love their husband and love their children. Next is again sensible. It's not in your notes. That was my bad. It's the one that's repeated. I missed it here. We're not going to repeat what it means to be sensible, but you can write it in there in the, in the blank. So after love their children, sensible, and then pure. Pure is chaste. It's purity of thought, action, speech, holy. Each older woman, and they are to instruct and help young women to be pure, to have purity of thought. This isn't just sensually pure. This is a purity of life. You're not prone to anger or distrust or assuming the worst in one another. There's a purity of thought, a cleanliness of your thought. Also, workers at home. This is literally busy at home, busy keeping the home. The older women are to help women love keeping the house. There's to be a faithfulness here. This is to be a primary area of responsibility. That doesn't mean husbands just go to work and then they're called to come home and disengage and you as the wife, you know, you just have to do everything around the house. That's not God's intention. That may be your reality. And if it is, you can trust the Lord with that. Be faithful. Be a hard worker. Don't complain. Be content. And hopefully your husband will grow in his understanding of what it means to be a Christ-like servant. But that doesn't get you off the hook from being faithful in the home, being diligent in the home. This doesn't automatically mean that you can't work outside of the home. But any work that you do outside of the home shouldn't prohibit you from faithfulness to being a good worker in the home. This is an actual command for women to be busy at home, faithful at home, diligent at home. Different women in different seasons with different obligations and different circumstances uh, may have varying responsibilities. This isn't one that is to be perpetually neglected. God has a category for a woman to be incredibly faithful in the home and a worker providing income. Proverbs 31, we actually see that. It's commended. It's not commanded. It's not commanded for a woman to work outside of the home. It is commanded for a woman to be faithful in the home. And so let your faithfulness flourish there. And as appropriate in your context, in your situation with your husband, work beyond that. But guard your heart from tying your value to some sort of external working. That's not God's view. God actually calls you to be faithful in the home. Any questions about that? We'll keep plowing through here. Next is kind. This is good. They meet the high standard that God calls us to. They're, they're useful and beneficial to others. 
There's to be a kind disposition, a, a tenderness, a care, uh, an easiness of relationships with others. You're, you're gentle and measured in your interaction, warm, affectionate, good. This is to be with your husband. You are to be kind to him. This is to be with your children, siblings, sisters in the body of Christ, neighbors. There's no category where you have permission to be unkind to an individual. Mother-in-laws, be kind. <laughs> don't repay evil, and I'm not talking about mother-in-laws, but in general, don't repay evil with evil, overcome evil with good. You are to be kind. But what if my kid's just really defiant? Am I allowed to just really let them have it and unleash? No, even in your discipline and instruction, there is to be a kindness. And in fact, godly, self-controlled, temperate discipline and instruction is kind. It would be unkind to let your children continue in rebellion or defiance. So when we talk about kindness, we we don't mean don't give instruction. We mean give godly instruction the right way. And then subject to their own husbands. Subjecting themselves to their own husbands. There is to be an eager, willing, joyful submission to their husbands whom they love. And again, there's no clause about the type of husband your husband must be in order for you to subject yourself to him. Even when they're not lovable, not leading as you desire, it's still your call before the Lord to be subject to your husband to love him. And as I encouraged you women to make it easy for the men to grow in godliness, the men were encouraged to strive to make it easy for you to be this kind of women, to to get out of the way where they can from obstacles. Why does this matter? So that the word is not blasphemed. Well, then Paul goes to Titus and tells him what the young men must be. And apparently Paul has some really insightful wisdom into young men. And so he gave them what they could handle. One virtue, (laughs) sensibility. We all know young men. All right, I'm going to conquer the world. I could do this. I could take, no, think sensibly, self-controlled. Be measured in your thinking. It's all they could really handle and it sums up Christian virtue. Be sensible. And then Paul tells Titus, here's what you're to be as examples for all. That means you be this way so they can also see how all should be, how we should all be. And he says, examples of good deeds. Look at, uh, Verse seven, in all things show yourself, so in, this is comprehensively, Titus, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. Do good things, noble works, excellent works, continue in this. Then he says, purity, uh, do good deeds uh, with purity and doctrine. Purity and doctrine, that's teaching that is incorrupt. Doctrine matters. What scripture teaches has a bearing on the church. Please pray for Tom and Tyler and I and all those else who who put truth in front of the body of Christ, that we would be pure in our doctrine, that we would be faithful, that we would rightly divide the word. And then he says, dignified, again, that serious bearing in life. There's no room for crassness. Uh, There shouldn't be a, a edgy preacher 
swearing pastor, impure speech, inappropriate. There's no place for that. For the man of God, he's to be exemplary in these things. There's to be a a purity in doctrine. He's to be dignified, sound in speech. That's that healthy, healthy speech again. Right speech, good. It's above reproach. No accusations stick regarding this man's use of word, words. Nobody can say, oh yeah, but have you heard him talk about this? What happens when this happens? What happens when we're being all these things as the body of Christ? Well, he tells us in verse eight, so that the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. That's the call for us to be above reproach in our living, holy, it will increase our usefulness. Each one of us would do well to to take this list and to intentionally pray, Lord, help me be these things. And to ponder, God's intention to grow us in this is reciprocal relationships with one another connected. How is that going? Are there areas you have neglected where you need to give more intention to being connected to other women in the body of Christ? Listen, it's hard. Yes, it requires being vulnerable. Yes, it requires time. And yes, it requires energy. You may be thinking, listen, I am at my, I am above what I ever thought my capacity could be with care for the kids and sports and work and keeping the house and husband and go on and on. And your list may be this big. Are those things more important than holiness? Than sanctification? Than living in accordance with your salvation? It's foolish to think that those things matter and our personal conduct and character doesn't. What are you trying to store up for yourself? Joys in this life? Things of this life? Or eternal rewards? Usefulness for the Lord that bears weight into eternity. That's the call for each one of us. And we desperately need God's grace because none of us have arrived in this. I love what Tom says. We're all just beggars helping other beggars find bread. We desperately need the grace of God. We need grace from one another. You look at this list, how how far short do each one of us fall? And yet God calls us to grow, to keep striving. We're not under condemnation. We're reconciled to God. We have fellowship with the Lord. And so there's actually a sweetness to being able to grow and pursue growth, even if it's hard. Don't give in to neglecting these things because it makes you uncomfortable. Pursue them and welcome them. Think about this. If older women are to teach younger women these things, there's probably going to be some hard conversations about your love for your husband, about your love for your children, about being sensible, about being temperate, about fill in the blank. Do you make it easy for other women to address you on those things? Are you inviting those types of inputs into your life? Each one of us should be eager to grow in holiness more than be comfortable that God would be honored in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We know that your commandments are not burdensome. Whatever is weighty or hard about what we've heard today is just because we love our sin and we love ourselves. And so Lord, help us to think rightly, knowing that embracing every one of these 
commands only leads to good as we draw near to you in loving obedience. Thank you that our call to obedience in these things is not to assuage your wrath, not to satisfy your wrath. Christ has paid for it fully. And so we get to, with freedom of heart, love you and draw near to you out of gratitude and not out of fearful reverence and not out of fearful obligation. And uh, we just praise you for these things. Help us to grow for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.